Matthew 26. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 35 this morning. Last week, we observed Jesus and the disciples preparing to eat the Passover meal together. And I'd mentioned uh, some of the preparation that would occur uh, to be able to enjoy that celebratory meal because the disciples were going off to prepare that. And so um, I talked about how the Passover lamb was offered up as a sacrifice in the temple and then descri described a little bit of the Seder meal uh, and how that would have been performed as a remembrance of God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Uh, and it was during that celebration in that meal that the disciples learned that one of their group was a betrayer. And everybody's surprised because apparently Judas has done a very good job of keeping this under wraps. Uh, nobody knew who it was, uh, but we know that it was Judas. Uh, even though Judas had spent many years with Jesus up to this point, even though he'd spent many years listening to Jesus' teaching and had witnessed many of these miracles that Jesus had performed firsthand, uh, he was not actually one of Jesus' disciples. When the opportunity presented itself to enrich himself and put 30 pieces of silver in his pocket, uh, he found a way to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. And after the Passover meal is over, Jesus leaves the meal and he goes uh, to begin this plan uh, that he had made with them. And then after Judas leaves, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper among his disciples. All that's getting ready to happen in his crucifixion is going to initiate a new covenant through his broken body and through his shed blood that's going to take place of the old covenant which required numerous animal sacrifices over and over and over again to atone for sin in the lives of God's people. And at the cross, Jesus atones for the sin of everyone who is going to put their faith in him as the perfect sac sacrifice, the perfect Passover lamb. So the old covenant is no longer in effect. The new covenant in this perfect sacrifice is what they celebrated in that Lord's Supper. This sacrifice is one that is acceptable to God on an infinitely more perfect level than any of the other sacrifices that have ever been offered. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus did away completely with the need for the Jewish sacrificial system altogether. So the old, old sacrificial system is dead in Christ. And if we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, and then enter into this new covenant with God, we remember that covenant every single time that we take the Lord's Supper. We remember the broken body as we break the bread and partake of that. We remember the shed blood every time we partake of the wine or the juice, uh, depending on your inclinations. And this week, uh, today, we're still on Thursday of Holy Week, right? We're working our way through it. And we're going to see some more of those uh, sad, glad promises that I mentioned last week, right? The sadness in that all of this is coming down on Jesus, but the gladness in that we have promises that go beyond the hardship that he's facing. And so before we jump into it, let's pray together and then we'll get into our text. Father, I come before you grateful for the sad, glad promises of the cross. 
Lord, I'm broken that sin pervades my heart, that it is something that I have to wrestle with on a constant basis, but I am glad that the cross of Christ has made me no longer a sin to it. And I'm grateful that that is a reality for everyone that has called on your name, that has placed their faith in Jesus And I pray that that will be a new reality for more and more people coming from death to life every single day. Lord, as we make our way to the cross in your word, I pray that the realities that are there would settle into us as solemn realities, things that should weigh heavily on us, but should also relieve a great deal of the world's stress in our heart. And so as we look at your promises today, I pray that we would be able to push away the distractions of the world, Lord, and we would be able to focus solely on our worship of you today as we get into your word. Lord, I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, Matthew 26, verses 31 to 35. My intention this morning was to go all the way to 46. And as you can see, I didn't make it. And the reason why I didn't make it was verse 32. And so um, there's not a whole lot in verse 32 if you take it at first glance. But we're going to back up a little bit. We're going to look at the grand narrative of the gospel in relation to verse 32. Um, So as I read it, pay special attention to verse 32. Um, It it really hit me uh, in a unique way this week. Matthew 26, 31 to 35. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight... All of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go to Galilee, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And so right off the bat, in our verses this week, the disciples are going to be made aware that everything that Jesus is about to experience, he's going to go through it alone. Right? He's going to go through it alone. He tells the guys directly that all of them are about to abandon him as the events of the nights progress. And this isn't just this feeling that he has about their character. This isn't something that, that he has as divine knowledge. Because, you know, sometimes Jesus just knows things because he's God. Right? This isn't one of those instances. The abandonment by all his disciples has been foretold in Scripture. Right? Jesus says, for it is written. Anytime you see that, you know he's quoting Scripture. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And what Jesus is quoting here is Zechariah 13.7. Okay? Zechariah 13.7. The whole verse says this. Sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So one thing that we need to note from this passage in Zechariah is that it is the God the Father who is commanding the sword to strike the shepherd. 
Right? The father is commanding the sword to strike the shepherd. Everything that is getting ready to happen in the next day and a half of Jesus' life is happening at the behest of the father. Nothing here is out of control. Everything here is happening in God's ultimate plan of salvation for his people. Everything. Now I mentioned last week that he's working out this plan of salvation through the free will choices of the people who are enacting this plan. Right? We said that about Judas. Right? It was said that Judas would betray Jesus, but Judas chose to do that. So that this means that everyone who has a hand in Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion, they are accountable for the part that they play in this. But in God's omniscience, He knew when to send Jesus into the world in order for this to come about. Right? This is what Paul's referring to in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when he said, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So God knew the right time that His plan would be enacted to send Jesus so that these religious leaders would scheme against Him so that Judas would go with them along with this plan so that Jesus would wind up on the cross. This was all part of God's plan. And so Jesus, knowing the Scriptures, knows that His disciples will scatter when the events of this night unfold. But I love what he says in verse 32. He says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. It's such a simple verse. So innocuous, you wouldn't even think if you could just blow right past it. It must have been devastating for the disciples to hear about their own weakness. I mean, when the Savior tells you that you are about to fail, that's pretty bad. Right? And then you realize that your failure has been written about hundreds of years before you were ever born. I don't know, that seems worse to me for some reason. Right? You're about to drop the ball. And not only do I know it, but anybody that has read that passage in the scriptures over the last 500 or so years also knows it. Right? For some reason, that seems worse to me. But the beauty of verse 32 comes from the beauty of the gospel itself. Jesus doesn't leave the disciples in their failure. Jesus says, after I have risen, so we see here we have a promise of Jesus' resurrection. Right? we got Easter coming up. It's pretty much just around the corner. I'm not diving too deep into that today. But we have the promise of the resurrection. He says, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Right? It seems real simple, right? But what Jesus is doing is he's setting up a meeting with his boys once this is over. Right? This night, fellas, is going to be a bust for all of you. You're going to screw it up. I'm telling you, it's happened. It's been foretold for hundreds of years that you're going to mess it up this night. But this night is not the end of your story. It's not the end of the road for us. 
when I am resurrected, I will meet you in Galilee. I mean, it's such a simple verse, but there is so much beauty in that statement. I want to step back for just a moment. I want to think about all of this, like I said, in the big picture. All right, think about this. Before any of these men came to be Jesus' disciples, Jesus went to the Father in prayer regarding them. Right? Luke 6, 12 through 16 says this. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Jesus spends all night in prayer about who would be these, his disciples, and these are the guys. Right? These 11 who are before him now, and then Judas who is off to betray him. Of these 12 men, when you read through the Gospels, you see flaw after flaw after flaw, right? They bicker like little children constantly over which one's the best. I'm the best. No, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. No, I'm the best, right? Constantly, right? How many times did Jesus have to call them out on this? Like three times? Then they constantly try to drive away the little children as they, have, as they come to be around Jesus, and Jesus rebuked them and told them that they themselves must be like those little children in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then you have James and John who go way too far off the reservation on this whole becoming like children as they go and get their mom to go ask Jesus if they can sit in positions of power in his kingdom. And I, I mean, I'm just like, Jesus has got to be like, guys, that's not what I meant when I said you've got to become like little children. All right? Don't get your mommy to come ask me for things in the kingdom. And speaking of James and John, right, these guys are nicknamed the sons of thunder. Do you know why? Because at one point, the disciples were traveling. They needed accommodations for the night. And so Jesus approached somebody, and they were met with opposition. They weren't allowed to stay in the village. And so James and John are like, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down on, from heaven and destroy the whole place? Because they wouldn't give us a place to sleep for the night. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 guys, calm down. Right? Let's just go to another village. How about that instead? Right? So you've got them going to get their mom, asking for positions of power. When they actually have a little bit of power, they're going to use it to nuke a village. And then you have Peter, who is full of pride. He can't seem to get control of his tongue. He just throws out whatever pops into his head. Right? I mean, we see it again in this passage. And he is constantly rebuked by Jesus. And you've got Judas, who is in this moment on his way to hand Jesus over to the religious leaders. And yet, despite all of that, Jesus never once throws in the towel and starts over with a better pick of better men. Instead, 
Jesus picks up a towel and he washes the feet of these men just a little bit ago in the Passover meal. The same feet that are going to get dirty again as they scamper away from their association with Jesus after Jesus lowered himself to the point of a servant to clean their feet. When it gets hard, when it gets scary, they're going to run away. Jesus knows the weakness of these men and he loves them anyway. Jesus knows the weakness of these men and he served them anyway. Jesus knows the weakness of these men and he told them that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And even after their predicted Failure. Jesus makes it a point to set up a time to meet with them again after his resurrection. Church, that should fill us with so much joy. So much joy. Because Jesus knows all your failures too. Right? And we're at the point in the biblical narrative where Jesus is making his way intentionally going to the cross, knowing each one of your failures. And he's going anyway. He knows that you get distracted by the things of the world. He knows that you worry about this stuff that is perishing, that is not going with us into the kingdom of heaven. He knows that that distracts you from the kingdom of God, and yet he would stoop over to wash your feet. Even in moments where you might deny him because you get scared. He knows you think thoughts you shouldn't think. He knows you're judgmental. He knows you struggle with anger and lust and envy and pride. And yet when you fail, when you fall, he says, I'm right here. When do you want to meet up again? When can we get together again? No, you don't have to clean yourself up before we get together. I took care of that at the cross. Just repent and come back to me. If we are in Christ we are no longer defined by our failures. We are defined by our association with Jesus and he is ready to meet with us even after we fail. I love verse 32. Such a simple verse. But when you look at it in the grand narrative of the gospel, it is such a beautiful verse. And it's at this point in the passage that Peter speaks up. It's been a minute, so let's read it again. 33 to 35, Peter told him, even if everybody falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Peter struggles with pride. He can't handle being told that he's going to fail. All the disciples deny 
that they're going to deny Jesus. But we see that Peter elevates himself up even over the other disciples. He says, even if everyone else here falls away from you, I will never fall away. Right? In this statement, we might be getting a little bit of a glimpse of who initiates those conversations about who's the best. I'm the best. You're not the best. I'm the best. No, I'm the best. Right? I get the impression that Peter might be the one that starts those. Right? Because I'm just a little bit better than you. In his pride, Peter can't conceive of himself being able to fall away from Jesus. And out of this, we see yet again another instance where Peter tells the Son of God that he's wrong. Right? This is the man that you confess to be the Messiah. This is the man that you confess to be the Son of God. And yet here again, you've told him that he's wrong. The last time, that didn't end up very well for you, Peter. Right? The last time that that happened, Jesus told you to get behind him and called you Satan. Maybe you should learn something from these interactions. He says, no, you're wrong. So think about the implication of what Peter just said. In these three verses, Peter just called the entire Godhead a liar. Right? I doubt that Peter would think about it that way. Right? But consider this. Jesus quotes from Scripture to tell the disciples that they would fall away. God the Father said it would happen. The Holy Spirit inspired the author to write it down. Jesus quoted it, and Peter said, nope, that's not true. And then, Jesus, who has shown a great propensity for knowing what is going to happen, gives even more clarity as to how this is going to happen for Peter. He tells him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Right, so given a little bit more detail about what all is going to happen, and to this statement, Peter doubles down. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. In his pride, Peter cannot take his own weakness into consideration. He just can't deal with it, not even for a moment. Now, we all struggle with this from time to time. From the outside looking in, we can offer some suggestions, right? Maybe Peter and the boys should have asked if there was any way to avoid the personal weakness. Jesus said, you've got some weakness that's going to show up tonight. We're going to see it. And maybe they could have asked something like, I know the Lord said this would happen. Right? I know it was declared that it's going to happen. But he also said that he was going to destroy Nineveh when Jonah told them that their destruction was imminent and they repented and prayed and they were spared. Is there any way that something like that could happen here? I mean, they could have done something. They could have said something like that. But, I mean, like, it's easy to see this stuff and arm, armchair quarterback it. Well, you should have thrown the slant route, right? Like after you saw the replay 16 times. Right? I saw that guy wide open. Why didn't the quarterback see it? Right? It's easy for us 2,000 years later after we've read it 100 times and had time to process it. But in the moment, it's difficult to be reminded that we are human and that we're going to make mistakes. Think about it. What's your gut reaction when someone calls you out on your sin? What do you do? What's your first thought? Do you just immediately fall on your face, seek repentance, and then ask the Lord, you know, what you need to do? Right? Is that the first, first thought that goes through your head? 
Are you quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? Right? Is that your first thought? Or are you quick to disregard, quick to defend, and quick to remind people that the Bible says that you should remove the plank from your own eye before removing the speck from theirs? How do you handle your own sin? Peter had a hard time hearing about his weakness. How would you fare if you were in his place? The gospel tells us that Jesus removes any reason for us to hold up lofty images of ourselves. Right? We are broken people that required a crucifixion and an atoning sacrifice to restore. There is no reason for any one of us to pretend that we are any more than that. And if we have made any progress, any at all, away from being the people that we used to be, we have only the death of Jesus on the cross and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit working in our lives over time to thank for it. That's it. Otherwise, we would still be lost in our sins and back at square one as sinners in need of a Savior. I just... Now, I was, I was planning on making it to the garden today, the garden of Gethsemane. I was planning on making it to the prayer of Jesus. And I just got caught up in this promise of restoration. And I couldn't get past it. I don't know if that was just for me or if that's for some of you here today and you need to hear that God is not done with you simply because you have fallen and failed. Like, I don't know why that landed on my chest today. But your failure is not permanent in the shadow of the cross. God is not through with you. He is ready to restore. All you have to do is repent and turn and come back. And he is there with open arms. Verse 32 is simple and it's beautiful. Set your time, your appointment. Where do you want to meet God after that failure? And set that time daily because you're going to fail daily. And this, it doesn't give you permission to sin, okay? But it gives you permission to be broken. It gives you permission to not be all right here in this place. We're not always going to get it right. But this should be the place where we cannot get it right and not go into this cancel culture nonsense where we couldn't even show our face in here again if we screwed up. That's garbage. That is not the gospel. Right? People are going to screw up. It's the nature of the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, to come together and support people who have fallen. To forgive them when you have been hurt or wronged. Right? This is supposed to be, what is it that the saying is? This is supposed to be a hospital for sinners and not a hotel for saints, right? Like This is the place to come and get well. 
Right? If this place was perfect, you wouldn't be allowed in it. And neither would I. But Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection, he has made it a place where we can be safe to be who we are. The cross outed you a long, long time ago. So do you need to repent? Seek forgiveness? Do you need to forgive? Like what is God calling you to do today? Maybe you're sitting here and you're hearing this for the first time. Maybe it's something that's been weighing on you for a long time and you need to come forward in faith for the first time. Let's do that today. I want to walk with you through that. Whatever it takes to get right with the Lord today, but don't let your sin make you think that God is through with you. Because that is so far from the truth. He is ready and willing to meet with you whenever you're ready. Let's pray together. Father, I come before you grateful for the cross. I am grateful for verse 32. I'm so grateful that in the midst of the disciples' failure, that you knew long before you ever chose them to walk beside you for three years, you knew that on this night, when things got difficult, they were going to bolt. And yet you still love them, you still serve them, and you still set up a time to restore them. I am grateful because that means that in my brokenness, there is restoration. When I fail, you are waiting to restore me into our relationship. And God, if there's anybody here today that is struggling with this, I pray that today is the day that they would realize that and that they would come running back into relationship with you. Lord, if there's anybody that needs to hear the gospel and understand the gospel for the first time, that today is the day that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the truth and that they would come running into your arms from death to life. I make this so. Help us, Lord. We need you. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.